It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Well, today is Free Advice Friday, um, the show that I do the second Friday of every month where I talk about narcissistic abuse issues, and I am open to taking your calls. So you can call in and ask me anything that you'd like about narcissistic abuse or share your experiences. Everybody would love to hear what you have to say. Um, People have been very shy. I haven't gotten a lot of callers lately, and I really would like to have some callers because I talk about this so much that I don't want to be redundant. I don't want to continue to talk about the same things that I talk about all the time. I've been posting a lot of live um, YouTube videos, so you can look for those on my YouTube channel. And I've just added my YouTube channel to my website, randyfine.com. So every YouTube video I have ever done can be accessed from my website, and there are a lot of them. I've been doing this for a really long time. I mean, these, as I look back at some of the pictures of me, it's like I don't even remember looking like that. But um, I guess I did. And now um, things are different, but I'm still talking about the same things. I've progressed in my topics because I've learned so much from all of you as to what your issues are, what kind of things are um, hanging you up and keeping you stuck in your pain. So that helps to open things up for me. But if you'd like to call in today, the number is 424-220-1801. I would love to hear from you. Um, What I want to do today is I don't know how many of you have picked up a copy of my memoir, Cliff Edge Road. But I want to give you some of the, um, I want to read some of this to you so that you kind of get a gist of what this book is about. And I'm going to start with the introduction. And please feel free to interrupt me and call. (laughs) So the number is 424-220-1801. The introduction is, I believe that there are divine reasons for the pregnant pauses in our lives, the the times when our life seems to come to a screeching halt and we are rendered powerless over it. Those are the times we should pay extra close attention to, for those junctures may be the most profound times in our lives. Though painful, those intervals cause cause us to sit quietly, and come face to face with our true selves. They provide tremendous opportunities for our personal growth. Despair is a lonely, desolate place we have all visited at some point in our lives. While in its depths, it seems to take an immense amount of courage to reach for rose-colored glasses and put them on. 
I spent the first 30 years of my life as a pleaser, yielding to everyone else's expectations of me. I continually dismissed my own needs. Having never developed a healthy self-esteem, I based my entire identity on the ever-changing opinions of others and my interpretation of their reactions to me. My boundaries were undefined. I wavered between unfiltered vulnerability and impenetrable emotional walls. Those were very tumultuous and depressing years for me. According to research conducted by by professionals in the field of psychology, there are common threads that have been traced back to the childhoods of many adults who suffer from codependency. Many had been pleaser children who had been conditioned from a young age to believe that they were only good or valuable when compliant with their parents' wishes. Often, those wishes were illogical and confusing. As children, they felt unduly responsible for their parents' needs and happiness. Healthy emotional boundaries between their parents and themselves were never properly established. They often suffered from depression and or anxiety in their adolescences, conditions that continued to trouble them well into adulthood. The codependent syndrome develops over a long period of time. Those who suffer from codependency in their adulthoods have often had erroneously difficult adolescences, but they are largely unaware of their tendencies until their condition impedes their ability to form healthy, stable adult relationships. I am grateful to say that although I suffered from that confusion for the first 30 years of my life, today at 61 years old, my life does not resemble that portrayal in any way. But remembering where I came from keeps me humble. It is my sincere hope that as you peruse the pages of my book, you will find my story touching, inspirational, and most importantly, an impetus for healing. The first chapter of the book is called The Final Curtain, and um, the quote is, All deaths are sudden, no matter how gradual the dying may be, by Michael McDowell. As we lay on our backs looking up at the sky, I glanced over at Cammie, expecting to see a spark of childish wonderment in her eyes. She had been a delight, as was typically her nature. Instead, her tiny eyelids looked heavy and kept drifting closed. It had been a long day for her. Almost an hour had passed since the first launching of the fireworks display. With a sense that the grand finale might begin at any moment, we made a split-second decision to pack up our camp and leave a few minutes early. With any luck, we would avoid the torrent of people all trying to exit the park at the same time, hopefully circumventing the impeding traffic jam on the only road out of there. We quickly grabbed our things and then proceeded to forge a pathway through the vast sea of spectators, trying, considerate as possible under the circumstances, and not trample on anyone's blanket. 
feeling secure in the safety of her daddy's arms, Cammy laid her sleepy head on his shoulder as we headed for our car. As we drove home, I turned my head around and peered into the back seat of the Maxima. Not surprisingly, Cammy had fallen asleep, her head gently resting on the adult-sized seatbelt strap that miniaturized her petite stature by contrast. A perfectly spiral golden curl lay softly over one eye. I found myself gazing at her for a moment, marveling at her untainted beauty. Though I dreaded the thought of ever having to disturb her, I knew we would be home in less than 15 minutes. Surely she would wake up as we transferred her from the car into the house. Daddy will carry you upstairs, I said, as he lifted her languid, dazed, and glassy-eyed out of the car. He carried her up the front walkway and into the house. Brush your teeth and get ready for bed, and then I will come up to tuck you in and kiss you goodnight. I stood in the foyer watching as they ascended the staircase. Then, as I turned and faced the unlit kitchen straight ahead, the blinking red light on the answering machine sitting on the kitchen counter caught my eye. I felt it beckoning me with rapidly pulsating, imposing urgency. Curious, but with a sense of inexplicable foreboding, I approached the machine and played the message. Keith is dead. Call me the second you get home. She had not identified herself, but she didn't need to. I knew the distinct, raspy sound of my ex-mother-in-law's voice very well. Though predictable and imminent, the news hit me hard. Keith, my 34-year-old ex-husband, had died. The jolting impact of that day, Wednesday, July 4, 1990, would be indelibly pressed on my memory forever. And this is so interesting because we just had 4th of July. And so this has been 19, 30 years. Yeah. July 4th, 1990 to today, or to this July, is 30 years. Absolutely. Okay, so this this took place 30 years ago. The next chapter, which, um, okay, this is called Dirty Laundry. And the quote is, remember... As far as anyone knows, we are a nice, normal family. The quote is by Homer Simpson. I took my first breath of life on September 4, 1958. Karen, age 7, and Linda, age 5, anxiously awaited the news of my birth, hoping to get the baby sister they had asked for. My parents, who regarded daughters more more desirable than sons, hit the jackpot a third time. My father sat in the waiting room listening as the doctors announced the birth of one boy after another. He felt like the luckiest guy in the world when the doctor announced that his wife had given birth to a baby girl. I grew up in a stereotypical 1960s American family. The five of us lived comfortably, lived a comfortable middle-class life in a modern suburb of Baltimore County called Pikesville. 
My mother stayed at home attending to the needs of her family, as did most married women of that era. She took pride in her job as a full-time housewife and mother. Mom spent most of her time in her kitchen. She prepared a delicious three-course meal every night and baked all her own cakes and pastries from scratch. An attractive lady, she always looked well put together with her crisply pressed apron, her just-so hairdo, and her long manicured nails. My mother never worked outside the home, but did a lot of volunteering. She took an active role in our synagogue sisterhood, often serving on the board and volunteering her time wherever needed. As a partner in the family business, my father worked long, grueling hours six days a week at a job he despised to provide our family with everything he needed. we needed. The drudgery made him tired and cranky, though unfortunately never wealthy. A proud and patriotic World War II veteran, Dad hung an American flag outside our house to honor our country on every national holiday. Passionate, outgoing, and assertive, he strongly voiced his opinion about everything to everyone, both interested and disinterested. disinterested. If he had something to say, he did not care who wanted to hear it. My father, trained as a medic in the Army, could manage any crisis in a calm, organized manner. He showed up first, pitched in, and helped anyone who needed it. He had rescued several people and saved many lives as both a soldier and a civilian. My parents, both of the Jewish faith, came from completely different upbringings. My mother grew up in a very observant home. My father did not, but celebrated his Jewish heritage with great pride. Jewish artwork or artifacts of some sort hung on every wall of our house. Our kitchen clock had Hebrew letters instead of numbers. My mother kept a kosher home. We attended synagogue as a family every Sabbath, and my siblings and I each attended Hebrew school for six years not in place of regular school, but in addition to it. Mom had built her entire identity around being Jewish. The identity either clouded or influenced every thought she had. She classified every person she met as Jewish or not Jewish. When she spoke of people I did not know, she always indicated whether or not they were Jewish, as if, Being Jewish made them more acceptable or put them in an elite category. I remember her pulling her car over on Reisterstown Road when she saw a yeshiva boy walking by to offer him a ride. The boys all looked the same, white shirts with tzitzit hanging out the bottom, yarmulkes on their heads, and black pants. She did not know any of them, but felt safe picking them up just because they were good Jewish boys. My mother somehow inserted the word Jewish into every conversation I had with her, so much so that just hearing the word made my stomach turn. As a result, instead of being embraced by Judaism as my mother hoped, it turned me completely off to the religion. 
I did not judge people by their faith or feel superior to them because of the religion I happened to be born into. I somehow understood from a very young age that many different perspectives on life existed, perspectives my mother either could not or chose not to expose me to. One thing I knew for sure, I did not want to spend my life peering through her same narrow lens. My mother often told me as a child that she hoped I would develop a thicker skin than she had, so life would not be as painful for me as it had been for her. That always struck me as odd. As far as I knew, she had not had an unusually difficult life or complicated childhood. Mom grew up poor in the Great Depression, but so did everyone else she knew. As the only girl in a male-dominated home, her mother expected her to help with the household chores. A hard life, perhaps, but painful seemed like a stretch. Starting at around 9 or 10 years old, I began trying to develop the thick skin my mother wanted me to have. I sought out problematic people and pursued difficult, sometimes dangerous, situations to test my resilience. Though I did it all behind my mother's back, I certainly did not want to contend with her overreactions. Whenever she got upset or overwhelmed, she raged, and then the entire family paid dearly. So, I experienced whatever I wanted to experience, and then worked the problems out on my own. Hypersensitive to his wife's mood swings and often the target of them, Dad tiptoed around her. He went to great lengths to shield her from the realities and challenges of life because he knew she could not cope with anything. He made her life very easy, though I don't think she appreciated anything he did for her. She treated him horribly. My father had lost his mother at the age of five and had no memory of her. He had a cold-hearted, neglectful father who never showed him love. Having longed for a mother's love his entire life, he believed that mothers, especially mine, should be worshipped as queens. He expected me and my siblings to worship her as well. On more than one occasion, Dad wished me or one of my sisters a happy birthday and then urged, Thank Mother for giving birth to you. I cringed every time I heard him say that. Dad always referred to Mom as Mother or Your Mother. I don't ever remember him referring to her casually as Mom or Mommy. Whenever Mom wanted attention, she would refer to herself, to herself in the third person, saying something like, your mother is not feeling well. I always wanted to reply, oh, she isn't. But she forbid us to ever refer to her as a she. That made her furious. She would say, I am not a she. I am your mother. Everything my siblings and I did, good or bad, somehow reflected upon her. She allowed no room for error. If she even thought someone outside our immediate family might get an inkling of our less-than-perfect behavior, she would lament, what will people think? 
or how can I show my face in public? No matter what we did with our lives outside the home and whatever decisions we made, Mom expected to remain front and center in our world, though she never admitted it. Since Dad worshipped the ground she walked on, he saw things no other way. We found it very difficult to separate from her at the appropriate stages of our development without feeling terribly guilty for hurting her. We had no healthy way to disentangle from the stifling enmeshment of our family and blossom into the individuals we had every right to be. My mother had an entirely different persona in public than she did in private. To elicit the reaction she desired, she could seamlessly switch from one to the other. I think she may have been the greatest actress that had that ever lived. Unaware of her phony facade, everyone adored her. People often sent her letters of appreciation for favors she did for them, telling her what a kind, beautiful lady she was. She thrived on that adoration and knew exactly how to obtain it. As a child, I did not see anything unusual or dysfunctional about my family. I believed every family operated the way mine did. It took over 40 years for me to recognize the degree of madness I had grown up with. And before I understood the extreme emotional abuse my siblings and I had endured. Looking back, everything about our family life seemed chaotic and confusing. To add to the insanity... My parents often told me and my siblings that they loved us and would do anything for us. While we desperately wanted to believe what they said, we could not deny that we came second to their relationship. Their enmeshment in each other's drama left no room for anyone else. My parents also claimed, albeit falsely, that we could tell them anything. They assured us that no matter the situation, they would understand and support us. But every time we needed support or advice, we wrestled with whether or not to involve them because they often made us feel worse. Mom would fly off the handle and blame someone for what happened or act sympathetic and understanding to our faces while stockpiling the information to use as ammunition later, sometimes years later. Dad had patience, compassion, and empathy. But he told Mom everything we said. We had no one to advocate for us, no one we could trust. My parents argued more often than not, neither of them bothering to filter their words. They did not seem to care where they argued, what they said, or how they said it. As a young child, I found their fighting terribly frightening. Time stood still as I watched in silence, waiting for it to end. Never knowing when the outbursts or melodramatics would break out, I lived stressed out and on high alert at all times. My parents' behavior was nothing short of disgraceful. My mother frequently and shamelessly belittled my father in our presence. It sickened me to watch her deprecate humiliate and emasculate him while he obediently acquiesced. When Dad came home from work each evening, 
she would goad him into fighting the battles she instigated with us that day by calling him a weak, lousy father. Then, jumping to her defense, he would yell at us for hurting our mother, never caring to hear our side of the story. Just like a puppet master, she pulled all his strings. During peaceful times, they acted like teenagers in love, holding hands, kissing and hugging. They often told my siblings and me that no one had a spouse as wonderful as they each had. I grew up with a seriously distorted understanding of romantic love. From birth, my mother assigned the role of golden child to me. She never tried to hide her favoritism from the rest of the family. A huge contrast existed between how she treated me and how she treated my sisters. That upset me. I did not want preferential treatment over them. I adored my sisters and could not bear to see them hurt. The humiliation, criticism, and name-calling my sisters constantly endured frequently caused them to run out of the room crying. Several hours of mournful wailing often followed the verbal abuse. Those sorrowful sounds resonated through the entire house, yet neither of my parents ever tried to console them. Forced to live in constant chaos and drama, desperate for a harmonious home life, I assumed the role of family mediator. No one else in my family seemed rational enough to do it. My parents never considered the huge burden they allowed their youngest child to shoulder or the traumatic effect it might have on me. By the time I reached adolescence, I had become proficient at absorbing other people's pain and protecting their feelings while ignoring my own. That pattern endured well into my adulthood, negatively impacting every relationship I had. As the youngest child, I had the benefit of watching my sisters interact with my mother and learning from their mistakes. I knew exactly what it took to remain in her good graces. In my mother's eyes, I could do no wrong. She gazed at me all the time as if she had cultivated a perfect specimen. If I got caught doing something wrong, she never allowed me to own the responsibility. She always blamed someone else. My mother refused to see my imperfections. To admit I had imperfections meant she did too. I never thought of myself as perfect, but I believed others would only accept and love me if I was. Forever striving for that unattainable quest, I remained depressed and disappointed for many years. My mother told me that my outer beauty would always open doors for me. She never encouraged me to work at anything or develop my inner self in any way because she believed I naturally had what everyone wanted. She did me a huge disservice. While other kids focused on education, setting goals, and creating the lives they wanted, I sat there waiting for everything to come to me. When things did not go my way, I couldn't understand why. The doors that beauty did open for me made my life anything but easy. 
They caused me heartache and a great deal of trauma. It is said that mother knows best, and many mothers do. But I learned the hard way that every bit of advice mine ever gave me turned out false, much of it detrimental to my well-being. It took over 40 years just to begin unraveling the confusion. Even then, I had an arduous journey, a steep uphill climb with many pitfalls. My life, built on a house of cards, had no foundation. I had to build it from the ground up, brick by brick. The next chapter is called Broken Doors, and the quote is, by Sigmund Freud, I cannot think of any need in childhood as strong as the need for a father's protection. I never felt physically safe in our family home. As I reflect back on why, I understand that my unease had to do more with emotional safety than physical safety. The house never felt physically safe to me. It had too many ground-level windows for my comfort. Even though curtains or blinds covered every window, I always felt vulnerable and exposed. Our house had four entryways. The door used most frequently by my family led from the carport into the den. The front door, usually reserved for guests, opened to the living room. We used the side door in the dining room to go out or sit on the patio, and my father used the laundry room door when he did his gardening, but mostly to take out the trash. Though inattentive to the emotional, emotional safety of his children, my father diligently attended to the physical safety of our house. He installed deadbolts, chains, and or slide bars on every door for extra protection. The supplemental locks did nothing to alleviate my fear of someone breaking into the house through a window. As a child, I often had nightmares about a dark, shadowy figure chasing me around the backyard and right up to the patio door. Most of my childhood dreams involved our home's doors and windows. The longest-running recurring dream I ever had began in my adolescence and continued into my early 40s. In the dream, I am always standing by one of the four doors. My father is leaving the house, and I am saying goodbye to him. Since I will be home alone, I ask him to please make sure the door is securely locked. He assures me that he is deadbolt locking the door and that I do not have to worry about my safety. Then he leaves the house, and I walk away. I come back later to check the lock and reassure myself that I am safe. But when I gently touch the doorknob, the entire door swings open. I try to relock the door from the inside, but no matter what I do, I cannot lock it. I am terrified that someone will come in and hurt me. I remain by that door, policing it for hours, hoping my father will come home soon. When he finally returns, I tell him how fearful I felt because I could not lock the door. He has no idea what I'm talking about. He tells me there is nothing wrong with the lock. And then he shows me. The door locks perfectly for him. 
unable to convince my father that the lock needs to be repaired, I continue to fear for my safety. In my early 40s, struggling to understand why I suffered from acute anxiety and depression and why I felt emotionally tortured around my parents, I sought out therapy. I had a severe guilt complex for feeling the way I did about them. I could not connect the dots. My feelings made no sense to me. I had a great husband and two wonderful children. I thought I'd had a normal childhood with two loving parents. But something constantly ate me up inside. I could not deny that I needed help. The first session with my therapist, she identified my pain as a boundary issue. I did not understand what she meant by that. I found it difficult to make the connection between boundaries and my pain. As I worked with her, I began to recognize the emotional enmeshment I'd had with my parents my entire life. They had complete access to my emotions, whether physically with them or not. In time, I came to see that I had never formed a separate identity. She also helped me recognize the emotionally unsafe and bizarre childhood I had grown up in and the ways in which it had impaired my adult life. I learned how to establish healthy emotional boundaries with my parents and in every aspect of my life. In one of our sessions, she remarked that my mother sounded like a narcissist. I did not understand what she meant, and she did not elaborate further. As a licensed, as a licensed therapist, she probably could not diagnose anyone she had not evaluated. My mother never acted the selfish way I imagined a narcissistic person acting. She never boasted or primped. She acted humble and modest. And she seemed to have a very charitable heart. I had yet to learn about narcissistic personality disorder or covert narcissism. I put my therapist's comment on the back burner and did not explore it further until a year later when I learned how to use the Internet. That's when it became crystal clear to me. My mother fit the profile to a T. My therapy lasted for over a year. When the therapy ended, so did the recurring dream. I was 42. So this, in this book, <clears throat> I go through my childhood, and I talk about um, all the things that had happened to me as a result of this very strange programming and the messages that I got. Um, and I became, as a child, I was very vulnerable to predators. And I talk about that. Um, <clears throat> there are a couple of chapters with different things that had happened about predators um, preying on me as a child. Um, and then I talk about um, an accident I had that mildly disfigured me but in my mind, it had ruined me because I was told that I was perfect and that people would love me for being perfect. And now I wasn't perfect, and I could not deal with it. And my mother couldn't, de couldn't deal with my emotional... I was a basket case, and she couldn't deal with it. So she had caused 
this problem in me that I couldn't accept because I was no longer perfect, and now she's telling me, get over it. Very mixed message. Um, There's some things about my my young adulthood that were very traumatic. Excuse me. And I talk about that in different chapters. Um, And how these things that happened and these stormy relationships I had scarred me for life and caused more trauma on top of the other trauma. So I had, you know, listen, you guys know this. I had um, complex PTSD from my childhood, and then I had traumatic incidents all throughout my life, terrible things, with no ability to cope. But the the story goes on to talk about someone I meet and the synchronicities that happen in that relationship that confirmed to me that I was in the right place. However, the relationship was extremely tumultuous and abusive. And that is the person that I talk about in the beginning of the book on the 4th of July that eventually died and how it affected me. But the book also, what's really beautiful about this book is that it shows you, I talk about how I pulled myself out of that and made different choices and ended up finding a wonderful, wonderful man who I married and then how my life began to change. But um, there is a remarkable, miraculous ending to this book that is just unbelievable. It's something that happened while I was writing it and something that just came out of the blue and miraculous. So I encourage you to read this book. I think you will find it very interesting. Um, People tell me they can't put it down. They're not getting any sleep (laughs) because they can't stop reading. Each chapter pulls them into the next. And I want you to read the book because I want you to understand where I came from and why I can relate so well to what all of you go through. I've experienced almost everything. And I know the confusion. I understand what it took to heal from this. I understand how hard it was to recognize the abuse I had suffered and how guilty I felt about labeling my parents this way, who I thought gave me everything. So I just want you to know that I get it. I more than get it. And I think it's what makes me effective at helping people. Not only do I have the knowledge, but I have the empathy and compassion, having lived through it. Uh, You know, I only touched on the tip of the iceberg of the things that went on. Uh, it, It got increasingly problematic for me. 
and some of these things were horrendous, some of the things I lived through. So I'm really grateful to be here today. I'm really grateful to have gone through what I went through, to have healed, to have risen above it, and to be here for you so I can help you through this challenge, the challenge that is full of hurdles that are very difficult to jump. So Cliff Edge wrote a memoir and read about this. It will give you tremendous insight into me and where I came from. I have been posting live videos on YouTube lately. Uh, There's a lot of very brief YouTube videos, and as I said in the beginning, I've put them all onto my website. So every video I've ever put on YouTube is now. Um, There's a YouTube, YouTube section on my menu, and you can go to it and watch everything there. So you don't have to go anywhere else. Every show that I ever do, have ever done is there. And there's links to every one of those shows that you can listen to so you can see what the title is and see if you're interested. My show now has a store. It's a shop. And I've mentioned it before, but I, I ask you to really support me in this shop. I mean, there are some downloadable MP3s where I discuss in depth certain topic, topics, and they're very valuable and very inexpensive. So please support me and um, download some of those. I think they're $8 a piece. It's nothing compared to what I charge. So you're getting counseling at a, just a ridiculously low fee. There are also... Um, three downloadable posters, but they're 11 by 17, so they're frameable. And they have some amazing words on them that will inspire you every single day. They will hold you up. They will support you. They will validate you. And I ask you to please check them out. So shop at my page. Um, You know, I also have an Etsy store called Rafi Designs, R-A-F-I Designs. And you can go there because I have lots of beautiful things on that site. Um, some, just check it out. Just check it out. I think I have the link to it on my, um, on my website. So you can go there and check out what I do in that store. Um, we didn't have any callers today. That's not unusual. I don't know why you guys don't want to call. <laughs> I really don't. But um, anyway, I got to give you a very brief expose of what my book is about, what Cliff Edge Road is about. And uh, it's a really good read. Right now, while there's so much downtime, you probably just scarf this book up in like two days. <laughs> but I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, that's what everyone is telling me. So I hope you're all doing well during this COVID crisis. Uh, it's quite alarming that things are getting worse, not better. And it's really hard. We're all having this existential crisis. We don't know what our life is going to be tomorrow, next week, a month from now. We have no idea. And it's very scary, very depressing, very alarming. I recommend that 
during this time, you find some kind of meditation that resonates with you and do it every day just to keep you on a great mental health path. You need that relief every day because going through um, the pain that you're suffering, it's very stressful. The anxiety is not just in your mind and your body, but it lingers in your body and affects every aspect of your immune system and everything like that. So if you can take time out, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes every day, and find some kind of meditation that you like and give your body a rest from all the anxiety that you're putting it through, that would be so great. And so if you go on YouTube and you can look for any kind of meditation you want, they're guided meditations, just put in whatever topic. If you're looking for help with your sleep, if you're help help with stress, help with self-esteem, self-awareness, self-love. Of course, I have lots and lots of videos about narcissistic abuse, but I want you to meditate. And if you've never done it before, It's really not that difficult to do when you're sitting there with headphones on and you're guided through it. So I do recommend that you do that now for your mental and physical health. Well, I wish you all well. I hope you're all safe and um, staying clear of this COVID virus. I know it's keeping me home a lot, even though there's things I can do, because I'm so uncomfortable in the mask. I'm hot and uncomfortable when I go out, so I'm not really happy about going out and wearing it. I went out one day thinking I would just go enjoy some clothes shopping, you know, just, just have a day out. And it was so tiring for me with that mask on, not to mention the fact that you can't try anything on. So you got to take stuff home and return it. No fun at all. But I hope that you are finding this time uh, a time of healing. This is a pause in your life, the pregnant pause I told you about in the beginning of my book, in the introduction of my book. This pregnant pause when there's nothing you can do about it. So... Use this time for healing. I am available for you. You can make an appointment with me by going to randyfine.com. And once you're on there, go to the menu and go to Find uh, Coaching Counseling. And there's two different ways to make an appointment with me. One, you can do it by telephone. And the other one, you can do it through Zoom and we can be face-to-face if you'd like. So you can make the appointment there, and I will see it immediately. I get alerts right away, and we'll get started with your healing. You know, in some, actually in many cases, it does not take very long. You'd be so surprised. There's uh, a method that I use that frees you from the torture very quickly. And people that come on this show saying, you know, first time they they hear me, they're like, I mean, first time they meet me, they're like, 
I just want to die. I can't even go on living. And then after three sessions, they're done and better, and they don't need me anymore. So I just want you to know I'm here to help free you up from the pain that you're experiencing. I don't want you to suffer. You don't have to suffer. I'm not about selling you big packages where you have to lock in to a program with me. That's not what I'm about. I help you until. I help you with what you need and try to get you where you want to go as quickly as possible. I'm not about keeping you for long periods of time. When I hear that people have been in therapy for years working on this, I just shake my head. It's, it's so so sad. It doesn't have to be like that. When you work with somebody who understands narcissistic abuse and knows how to guide you out of the pain and into healing, it's amazing how free you can get. So please don't stay stuck in your pain. You can contact me. Uh, you can also email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. And for the next show, which will be the second, uh, second Friday of August, which is August 14th, I encourage you guys to call me call in. The number is always going to be 424-220-1801 and I always do my show at 11 a.m. Eastern. If you can't call into the show live or you're intimid- too intimidated to do it, then you can email me at loveyourlifeatrandyfine.com with questions. I will answer them on air and email email you back with a link to the show so you can listen to the answers I welcome your calls I'm here to help you I don't want you to hurt so stay well try to be happy find happiness and joy in small things you have a lot to be grateful for let that be your focus may joy and serenity always be yours goodbye We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.